Hello and welcome to another episode of NBRI New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Coleman Chair Professor, Marketing and Director of Research at Center for Retailing Studies. My guest today is Dr. Hema Yoganarasimhan, Professor of Marketing at the Foster School of Business, University of Washington. She holds affiliate appointments in Computer Science and Engineering, Department of Economics, and Center for Statistics and Social Sciences. Hema serves as a co-editor at the Quantitative Marketing and Economics, or QME, and as an associate editor at Marketing Science. Hema's research brings together large-scale marketing data, economic theory, econometric and machine learning tools to help firms optimize and automate their marketing decisions. Her research focuses on personalized targeting in mobile and online advertising. She also works on methods to personalize search rankings in online platforms in real time. Hema's work also spans estimation of the role of reputation on sellers and buyers behavior in online auctions. Uh, combined, her recent body of work presents creative yet technically viable solutions to the challenges that businesses face in today's world. Hema's research has won many prestigious awards, including the MSI Alden G. Clayton Doctoral Dissertation Proposal Award, the Frank M. Bass Outstanding Dissertation Award, and the John D.C. Little Best Paper Award. Hema has been a Marketing Science Institute Young Scholar and has won the Erin Anderson Award given to the Emerging Female Marketing Scholar. Hema has a PhD in marketing from the Yale University. Welcome, Hema, to the show today. How have you been the last one year or so uh, managing in this COVID-19 era? Uh, very significant considering that COVID originated in uh, in um, your neck of the wood. So uh, tell us a little bit about how it's all started in Seattle and how you've coped with the last one year. Thank you. Thank you, Venki, first of all, for having me on this show. I'm very excited um, to talk to you and to you know, also participate with your audiences. Um, so yeah, so last year has certainly been um, interesting, I would say, um, especially with a five-year-old at home. <laughs> Uh, you know, with all the schooling challenges which come with that. Um, but in, you know, but in some ways it's also been good. I, I've gotten to spend a lot of time with my husband. So you, you've been looking at it very positively. You've been very enormously productive too during the last year. So let's, I used the typical description of all your accolades, um, but I'd like you to describe yourself in your own words, maybe five words or less. What, who is... Hema. Okay, that's good. So I've been thinking about this, you know, with COVID, we have a lot more time to think because we don't get to interact with others as much. I think um, if you think about me, I, uh, if I think about myself, I think what I do more professionally and so on probably comes a little bit later. I think, I think of myself as mostly like I'm a happy person. You know, I like to spend time with my family. I like to cook. Um, uh, I think then comes research for me, like maybe like a fourth. Uh, but then I think one of the things I, I value uh, is to do whatever you do to do it well. So maybe perfectionism is important, maybe taking it too far as that, but you know, 
little bit of that is, I think, a useful trade. That's awesome. So you use five words perfectly, right? Happiness, cooking, family. and uh, family, and uh, research, and perfectionism. Yes. And uh, it shows. Uh, I, I guess you're very involved in whatever you do, and and the output shows. So let's start a little bit from your research journey. I know that you started with your PhD at Yale. Uh, give me a summary of your research journey the next few minutes so that the listeners and the viewers can get to your background very quickly. Uh, so when I started out uh, at Yale uh, during my PhD days, I spent a lot of time, I was really fascinated by these questions of social influence and social networks and how they affect how consumers think about things and how consumers are influenced by each other and how that affects firms' decisions. And slowly that morphed more into broader questions about digital platforms. And, you know, I started working with, you know, I was working mostly on theoretical models earlier on. Then I started working more with larger data sets. And I would say focusing on a broader set of questions, which happens to many people, I think, you know, uh, you know, as they do more work, they become broader, hopefully not narrower. Um, and, you know, now I work um, these days, you know, I work on everything from market design to policy evaluation, but mostly I think of my work as having like these two thematic elements, which is applications of like economic frameworks and methods from statistics and computer science and machine learning to understand what we would think are like challenging and large scale marketing problems uh, from the firm's perspective. So not just the methods, but also how does it impact like ROI or revenues for the firms? So excellent. You started with being interested in social influence, but along the way, as you described, you've become broader and now you're looking at broader sets of marketing problems and what is fascinating about your research journey, Hema, is that you have mastered a number of methodologies along the way, right? You said you started as an analytic modeler, then you started becoming more empirical. And within empirical, I know that you do a lot of structural modeling. And uh, then, uh, you know, you moved into more machine learning and you do causal modeling. Um, how hard was it for you to acquire all these skills and still apply them? Um, most of the people doing research do one or two of these at best. So you seem to have mastered all of them. Well, I don't know about mastering all of them. I do think, um, I actually think it's not very hard to learn these skills. I think one thing which is helpful is to start with the problem first and then think about like the methods that would answer them. I think people often tend to think of themselves as having a very narrow methodological expertise and then right. try to find a problem that fits that. I think going about it a little bit more problem focused, so this is a fascinating problem. Maybe I don't know exactly how to answer it, but then picking up the methods is fun. One other thing which has helped me immensely, which I think you only learn that when you do this is you actually see very, nice connections between, uh, you know, different spaces, what you learn in one space suddenly is like applicable in another. So I think when you do that, you, you are able to see connections better. See some cross-pollination across domains or yeah. marketing problems. Okay. And, you know, marketing is an applied field. We learn, right. you know, we bring methods from many things. So for, we, are, we are very well positioned to actually kind of blend these things. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think that helps. But I, I like your problem solving approach, but you make it sound very simple, but that still requires knowledge of all these methodologies and in-depth knowledge of it to be able to apply uh, them to the problem in the correct manner. And knowing that you're a perfectionist, I guess you would go very deep. To go very deep, you should be very facile with all these methodologies. What has been some of the twists and turns? Have there been any twists and turns? I know that you started with the social influence as a fascinating problem, but along the way, you also uh, looked at other problems as well. Tell us something uh, more about what are some of the changes that you have had on your journey? Uh, in terms of what, how I think about things? Right, things, right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when I started out, you know, especially as an analytical modeler, um, so you are often trying to explain things, right? So, right. okay, why does some equilibrium exist or why does something exist? Um, right. And over You're explaining time, a phenomenon, you're trying to explain a phenomenon, yeah, right? You're trying to explain a phenomenon, why are firms doing this or why are, you know, and one of the things I realized is as I've, you know, worked now more with like, you know, I'll talk more about it hopefully, you know, when, as we go further. Um, but this question of, I think in marketing, you know, even when we, we are trying to either substantively understand something, either using method, you know, analytical methods or sometimes in causal inference. And you know, that's I did a lot of that, but I think we have spent less time on how to do things as a field. I think that's how the field started off initially with all the right. OR people. Right, right exactly. Uh, I felt like we have moved away from that in that process that ground that that has been taken over maybe by statisticians and computer scientists and other people who have like you know come to fill that gap but i think marketing in the end for many firms is a question of how to optimize something uh mm -hmm. not explaining what they are doing per se not that that is bad understanding why someone is doing something is important but at the same time okay now that i understand it how do i optimize it i think so i think what has shifted in my way of thinking if anything i would say is this appreciation for this question of how as much as a question of why um, very nice yeah and you know we used to call this in marketing uh the descriptive models, which will describe what is happening, then we will have these uh, causal modeling, why this is happening and how it is. Now what you're seeing, the normative side of modeling, how to do things, right? For marketing manager, uh, they're interested in, you know, optimally allocating advertising dollars or optimally targeting mm -hmm. uh, customers, right? And now you're saying, we should be solving more of those problems. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was saying that we it started off that people in, who came from OR were mostly working on those questions. And I feel like right. that has kind of disappeared a bit. I think both are critical, right? How to do that. And that still needs to be tied to ROI. But it's a very often a very challenging question on how to like optimally target like in real time. And there right. are no good answers. And, you know, um, just saying that, oh, this type of targeting helps when you control for everything else is not very helpful for the firm and then they have to like know how to do it what are the statistical guarantees of a method like that right. so both theoretically so, and empirically i think these are challenging problems which i feel like uh, we don't we we have moved away from solving uh, to our so we should get back to it for to rediscover the the expanded role of marketing in the real world according to you is that right yes that's uh, that's that's yeah. a very so, nice summary <laughs> You know, I 
I have the same feeling too, you know, working with uh, industry practitioner people in our own center, we have a lot of retail member companies. And most of the times managers want to know how to do certain things. They sure want some insights. They want to know why, uh, you know, certain campaign worked, some campaign did not work. Why did a promotion, sales promotion work and so on? But they are not satisfied with that. They want some tool. So that brings us to the concept of should we be producing not just these normative uh, model or optimization models, but also real tools to help managers, you know, do solve their problems in real time? Should they be, should we be spending more time developing those tools also? That's a good question. I do think there is value, right, in some, in, in providing uh, anytime, if you have an idea or a method, anytime you make it accessible for a larger set of people to be able to use it, the idea has more legs in right. some ways, right? So uh, like, for example, in computer science, we see that many time people develop something, they develop a, a framework or a package or something which goes with it. And those kind of things have much more impact in the long run. So I think if you are talking about impact, right, uh, then we in also- In the real world, yeah. Then, yeah, then the tool to development have, is very important. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it might not be that it's actually, I mean, tools, you know, some of them might not be, you know, portable from place to place, but at least the basic frameworks should be broadly portable, right? Yes. Um, I, I think I'm glad that you're raising this point. You know, let's talk a little bit about some of your recent research, uh, particularly, let's start with the, your research on personalized search and machine learning, which comes to my mind. Uh, you, you, it's a fascinating paper in which uh, you really uh, show when personalized uh, search can be uh, optimized better with better machine learning algorithms. Tell us a few, little bit about wh what are the key insights from that research and what would you recommend to managers? So um, that's a, uh, thank you. So that's actually was a, one of my first papers where I used like machine learning methods. Right. And I learned a lot writing that paper myself. So that's a, a paper which kind of broadly looks at this question of how do you personalize search rankings uh, based on, let's say both, both contextual data, like, you know, broader aggregate data as well as user history mm -hmm. data. And one of the things it tries to do, which I kind of get into more details in some of my future paper is this paper, so this is question of what is the value of this behavioral data, like individual level user data, how much can it help you personalize the results? So, you know, knowing what I searched for and clicked for in the future, how much does it help me personalize this value of behavioral tracking? And both in the long term versus in the, as well as in the short run, like, you know, within the same search session, like, you know, versus, you know, in the past. And what I do find is that, yes, there are, uh, um, you know, there is certainly a lot of value in having these kind of personalized histories. But at the same time, I also find that um, the real-time queries, the real-time thing, the session-level personalization actually doesn't help much, which is kind of interesting because there is a lot of this move towards using active learning methods um, right. in, in uh, marketing and more broadly. Right. I don't know if it is just that specific context, uh, but it, it certainly kind of makes us think broadly about this question of what's the value of different types of data, whether right. how, depending on how you slice it across over time, across mm -hmm. people and how you aggregate it and how you store it, and then how they you know, affect some metric of importance for the firm. 
So you, one of the findings that really fascinated me, as you said, is that there's some diminishing returns to using too much of personalized data, particularly you know, in the short term, there doesn't appear to be a lot of gain, as you said. You use longer user history data, particularly the behavioral data, then it's useful. Um, but it's got very important uh, relevance today because uh, you probably are familiar with two weeks ago, Google's uh, announcement that they would stop tracking the cross-web, uh, cross-site uh, uh, usage of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, shoppers or visitors. And uh, that had created a lot of buzz, right? So what it's, they seem to imply is that, they seem to imply that they would go with their own data uh, and still be able to provide better targeting, right? Or they're trying to acknowledge privacy concerns, right? Mm -hmm. What is your take on that, if you've been following that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question of like data sharing among firms and like what, right. you know, and, um, and, you know, I've been following this debate, like also because, you know, in, in another follow-up paper on like targeting and privacy, we looked at this question of like how, you know, what are the implications for privacy uh, and, you know, GDPR kicked in and then, uh, you know, there's already limits on who can share data and how long you can store it and so on. So I do, um, one of the things which I have realized, at least from, you know, my all, all the work that I have done is right. on personalization. Now I have, you know, done, you know, at least like three or four papers on this topic is that personalization helps, but there is, as you said, pretty strong diminishing returns. If, if I had one week of data on some website, it probably tells me a lot. And, you know, after that, actually the contextual data is pretty valuable as in, uh, people like me who did other things, right? That's as valuable. So you call that contextual data and Google called this uh, some kind of a cohort or aggre aggregate level. Aggregate data, yeah. Uh, so not right. your data per se, but like aggregated data. People in like you, context. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and one thing you, and then, and the second thing I've noticed is that, as I said, so either it's pretty strong diminishing returns, you know, if they're following them on Google, everybody's using Google anyway, and they're seeing a lot right. of their activity. Uh, so the cross website data, the marginal value of that might be really not much. And mm -hmm. also even the best personalization models and the very best, you know, uh, with the best of data often give you only like, you know, Marginal improvement. Margin, right. Two to three percent improvement in outcomes which matter. Not to say that that is not valuable. That is very valuable usually, right? right. That, you know, on depending on the scale that you are at, that that could be right. big numbers. Um, but uh, but it's not that you personalize more. You're going to see a fifteen percent increase in. If sometimes I see papers and uh, both white papers and academic papers with that, you know that it's, it's too good to be true, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's yeah. overfitted in that data. It's not going to work in anything else. So yeah, I'm glad that you're being very realistic in here. But what I wonder is that you know Google controls about half of, if not more of the ad market, at least online, you know, $300 billion or so last year, and Google controls probably 150 billion plus, plus, uh, you know, two thirds of those is through mobile. So where do you think this is, uh, you know, going to play out in terms of the consumer privacy per se? Uh, will privacy still be uh, 
available to the users or is it just a, um, a mirage? So that's a good question. So actually in one of my other papers on targeting and privacy, what we actually find and show in fact is that platforms ad networks like Google have an incentive to preserve user privacy and actually reduce personalization. Right, I remember is, that, yeah. Which is very similar to what you're saying. Because at the end of the day, when they provide better matching, right? Let's say they provide advertisers like a much more, but then they, they are narrowing the number of people who are available, you know, advertisers who are kind of participating in that space. So, right. More, and they're all using auction mechanisms and all auction mechanisms will lead to a setting scenario where, what will happen is that even if this, this impression as an advertiser to me is valuable for $100, if I'm the only one bidding for it and no one else is bidding, I might get it at a reserve price of $1 or something, right? So actually get, making it more narrow targeting and having more and more personalization. Doesn't produce higher revenues for the platform, right? Actually reduces yeah. the revenues for the platform. And we show that more contextual targeting and less behavioral tracking can help platforms better. And this has been a conjecture uh, that people have had before and we empirically show it for the case of one platform. So from a platform's perspective, and they are the market makers really here. Um, right. they, are, they are actually, their incentives are more closely aligned with that of consumers um, than that of advertisers. Advertisers would of course prefer more, um, you know, more tracking. And you know, what might happen as a result is that these third party tracking firms where advertisers are then buying data and cookies right. might emerge because that's where they might try to actually, um, you know, if the platform is not doing that, then they might try to get that, but the platform can block that, so. Right, and plus they still have to go through the platform for auctions and reaching the consumers, right? They may use the data from the third party for cookie providers, for, but they may still have to go through the auctions and so on. So what you're saying is a very interesting and counterintuitive result that actually platforms can actually benefit consumers because it is incentive aligned with them. And uh, where do you think this is headed? Because um, if Google is doing this, and I know there's there's a lot of uh, tussle now going on between Apple, Facebook, Google in their different views, and Apple also wants to enhance privacy, mm -hmm. and um, whereas Facebook is against it, arguing that it hurts the small and medium businesses who like to target uh, more precisely uh, their users. Uh, so where do you think this is likely to head? Is there going to be some equilibrium where all will be uh, well off or one party is going to win here? Um, that's a good question. It's hard to predict. My own sense is that uh, people will start relying more on first party data Right. Uh, which is which is I think especially with the move towards mobile, where when right. you are in a mobile app, people can you know the you're app, captive, yeah, yeah, you're totally Basically. captured, right? Like right. your app ID, your user ID in the app is known, and you're fully you know it's um, very easy to stitch together data in mobile services because everybody's phone has an ID. Right. Um, and it's using that it's very easy for them to even stitch that data together. So I feel like as that is happening, first party people will rely more on first party data. And right. if anything, um, the third party data will a become less useful because the marginal value of that 
when the first party data exists is a very low because you know first you know you're not going to get you know as i said you're not going to personalize and get 10% returns at some point in some person and the platforms are being not incentivized to do it uh given how things are set up so my own feeling is that the reliance on uh so in some ways the bigger platforms like google facebook and so on which have very good first party data of themselves will benefit they'll thrive okay but is ironically facebook is the one that is making the argument that uh it wants to support even finer targeted personalized advertising because it's sm small uh sme yeah. small and medium enterprises who constitute the bulk of their advertisers they want more finer targeting yes um, advertisers want more targeting in general so if they they're in a two sided business right so they're trying right. to also make exactly. sure exactly because that's where the revenue generation also comes from but it's very interesting since you have worked extensively in both social influence and in we've talked about advertising mainly but what about the role of advertising itself with the emergence of influencers rather than social influence but so the influence of marketing mm -hmm. uh, do you do you see uh, some of the dollars shifting towards uh really cultivating influencers identifying influencers growing influencers and reaching users and prospects through influencers more than direct uh advertising Yeah there has been a growth in that certainly since you know when i for example worked on my youtube paper almost like 10 years back even right. back then things like the ford were like using influencers for video marketing right they would right. give a car to everybody and ask them to use the car and make these videos and post it those were like the early days of like influencer right. marketing now of course with like instagram and like youtube influencers everybody is really um using these people and i think in some ways all this personalization and these bubbles have led to a increase in that because what happens is that when i search for something on youtube right and i bought something uh, it's very easy for them to match my taste to what i searched for and show me videos from people uh um who have you know who have like posted let's say i watched some cooking video now they can get all these like comments right. on that and then show me those so it's it, so in some ways the rise of personalization on these platforms has led to an even more i think increase in the influencers business um and i don't see that uh necessarily going away partly because um uh as most people shift consumption of media to online settings um it's easy to uh, instead of showing them ads it's easy to actually show them these kind of influencer marketing campaigns right where there is a third party kind of doing this i think there were still there used to be a lot of questions on authenticity and uh whether it's legal people don't know how much they're getting paid and all that kind of stuff so i think those questions still remain but i think they i don't see that going away anywhere anytime soon so you are you suggesting that marketers should now be looking how to integrate uh, direct advertising mobile or desktop or any advertising that they're currently doing um with influencer marketing in in a way that it kinds of feeds each other or synergistic or kind of optimally allocate their dollars across these um 
so I think right now they're almost like two parallel things, right? Like right, they're in two parallel worlds, yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the things which has been challenging, like you know, there's been a lot of growth and improvement in understanding how uh, we study and think about the ROI for advertising or promotions, right? Where where the firm is controlling the activity. Uh, unfortunately, there hasn't been as much for those influencer marketing campaigns because you know you pay this person and they do this, and you are not really measuring directly the ROI of these activities. You don't even know how many times these are shown and exactly you know what they are doing. Um, but uh, but I think in some ways um, that needs to happen first where we need like better paradigms for measuring the ROI from these things um, before we can- well, even that's, not, that's not very difficult. So if you have an influencer today and you can, you can track all the influencers uh, particular post if it's an Instagram post versus a TikTok mm -hmm. video, you can look at the likes, you can look at the clicks, you can look at uh, the uh, yes. forwards. I, I think they can still track it and firms are still doing that. It, it only, the only issue is that the uh, team that is doing the direct advertising is different from the team that is doing the influencer marketing. And maybe the, the teams don't talk to each other in the, in the companies. And yeah. so that's what I was trying to think. If there is a way for them to marry the two, then their advertising could be more powerful. Yeah, uh, I do think that they kind of join the campaign sometimes. If there is a campaign, there is a promotion, the influencers might talk about that. Um, I think the key question is if these influencers didn't exist, right, from a causal perspective, what would be the F, what would, you know, maybe if there is advertising is still working, the timing is still working. So like experimenting uh, with influencer marketing seems more nascent in some ways compared to like the A-B testing with. Correct, yeah. Yeah, so I was thinking for the cooking, uh, you could be, uh, you know, a uh, food company like, you know, cereal company or, or a yogurt company could be actually placing its re uh, thing on a recipe with an influencer whom you, might be targeted to you, but at the same time, they could be um, targeting you directly with that particular product. And could they, could they, could they, can they not do an A-B test to see, you know, how that works on you? I think they can do an A-B test to see whether the ad, like holding off, but with the influencers, I, uh, if you didn't do the, inf because the influencers are kind of like almost like, you know, they make their thing, they post their video, and then the platform ends up showing it. I think that if the platforms, so you need cooperation from a platform, like an ad network to be able to also control for that, because there has to be a control group, which did not get shown the influencer. Oh, yeah, definitely. They may have to work with the Ad network. Uh, ad network or even the platforms basically so yes. if, if it is YouTube then you have to have a collaboration with YouTube so that those viewers are also served the same uh, uh, yes. YouTube videos of those influencer yeah but, except that but, right now they're not getting a cut of that right right I think that the there could be some on. experiment there uh, so that that's a ripe opportunity for future research so tell us a little bit about what are some of the other exciting projects that you're doing, Hema? Um, that's a um, good question. So I think that some of the other things that I've been uh, 
thinking about our questions more recently about uh, experimentation and also potentially uh, personalization in two-sided platforms. Uh, mm -hmm. Previously, um, you know, when you think about, for example, serving search results or personalizing ads, there is not really much of a supply constraint. Uh, so, you know, whether I see the search result and you see the search result and you click on it, there is no like interference. Um, right. But when you think about things like hotels or airlines and so on, when you think about showing results and when you're running A-B tests, what happens is that um, when I show some results to someone um, and let's say I, I split the traffic 50-50 and I show a result to someone and this different set of results to another person, uh, what, what can happen is that uh, when I experiment with half the population, maybe there are five rooms and they get filled and it looks like this is a great algorithm. But when I suddenly serve this algorithm to everybody in the world, there are only five rooms still. So you know the lift is not going to be beyond that. So when you have two-sided markets, both experimentation and personalization can become very challenging because when you do experimentation, you're doing it on a subset and that won't scale up because of other constraints. So one of the things I've been working with with a colleague of mine is to, um, is to think about this question of how do you think about scaling up experiments when you have these kind of constraints? Excellent. So, and uh, that must be a very challenging problem. Uh, what else, uh, you know, you see are some of the future issues that we as marketers should be working on, which we are not currently working on. Uh, you started by saying we should be doing more normative or optimization models. That's right on target. Uh, what else uh, is on the, uh, on the future radar that we should be working on, either in terms of methodology or in terms of uh, substantive problems? So uh, that's a good question. In terms of methodology, I think one thing we are doing less of is what I would say like online systems, like active learning systems, like bandits and RL and so on. I think they are being increasingly used in the industry now uh, for all these personalization problems. And, you know, we should, we should, as a field, should be thinking about more about using them. And I think we are starting to, and especially for short-term metrics like customer acquisition clicks and so on. But I think there's also this, you know, the industry and also the academics haven't really looked at this long run issue. How does it change customer behavior in the long run? I think, um, you know, a good thing is like, for example, like this kind of personalization and so on can lead to this kind of consumption bubbles. And we have, you know, heard a lot about how it can lead to polarization and so on. So in the right. short run, yes, it's increasing clicks, that's great. But like there are some big long run changes which are happening in customer behavior. So as a firm, you want to think about like, you know, how that's affecting things. So I think those, so this understanding of online systems and uh, short, you know, which are optimized on short run outcomes and their performance on long run outcomes is I think a very, um, useful, uh, you know, how do you think about, how do you come up with methods to think about that? I think that's useful. I think the second one is, which we kind of touched upon is, you know, how should, as a society, how should we think about personalization, privacy, and data ownership? You know, there have been, mm -hmm. uh, there was GDPR, was the last big regulation which happened in this space, but there's still a lot of discussion around these things. And as you said, there is no final answers we have, you know, and I think that's 
a quest. That's an issue where, you know, the more we can think about what are different incentives for different players and how we can quantify who gets value from what, I think if we have those numbers, we can think more, I would say, uh, it will be easier to think about policy. Um, also, do you fear that there may be a situation where too much of these bandits, you mentioned reinforcement learning, short-term optimization, short-term systems. I mean, the, we are doing automating many of these through these engines so much so that with the consumer behavior or shopper behavior itself uh, could be a prisoner of what these algorithms are recommending them. And could that be also not reflecting how consumers' preferences will shift over time? Um, are we doing something that uh, may be uh, leading to completely different equilibria here in this space? Yeah, I do think that there is not, sometimes when you personalize too much, that there is not enough exploration, which right. is happening, right? So uh, I my favorite example is Netflix, where when I go to my husband's, like, you know, account, like, we have, you know, it's in the same account, but when I go to right. his persona, it's a completely different set of movies. I'm like, wow, some of these movies I would like to watch, but I never get them, right? Uh, right? So there is an optimal level of exploration as well as personalization. Correct. And uh, both in terms of, you know, many of these engines, as, you, as we said, we think of consumer behavior as a given, but they right. might actually be shaping. I think polarization in the political space is a very good example of this, right. where, you know, if it shapes and changes how you think about things, um, you know, it's it's not that you have independent preferences based on what you are fed, right? So, right. Uh, and that can, um, so we can end up in these consumption bubbles. Right. Uh, so I think uh, right. It's it's both a firm's optimization question on what's right for them, but I think it's also a broader I think policy question of what information should you know consumers right. be shown. Both a consumer welfare question as well as a firm you know revenue Excellent. question. So yeah, this is fascinating. We've explored a lot of range of issues, uh, but I'd like to know a little bit more about Hema the person. <laughs> and you're obviously. A fantastic researcher. Thank you. Uh, what are some of the things that you do outside? You did mention cooking before uh, and family time. Are there any things you briefly mentioned about Netflix movies? What are some of your other passions or pastimes? So, uh, so because we live in Seattle and there is so much greenery and so many beautiful trails outside, one of the things I like to do, and I've been doing a lot more during this COVID, is going for walks. Uh, and uh, with also my daughter is more mobile now, being fine. Uh, I know. Actually, make her walk. She needs more outdoors than uh, <laughs> all of us. Yeah. So we, uh, I like going for walks. Um, uh, so that's very nice. Uh, or I just like to drink tea and read some books. You know, otherwise, you know, I'm not doing very active, crazy things. But you know. Okay. What are some of the books that you've recently read, or would you like recommend? So I like um, I like reading um, books to the extent I can, and one of my favorite authors is Barbara Pym, and mm -hmm. um, she's uh, you know from she wrote from like fifty like to seventies and mostly about women and their lives, and it's very funny. She's like kind of like Jane Austen, uh, mm -hmm. but slightly in a different era. So I really like and enjoy her. Like some there. of her work. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So we got to hear some the other side of Hema. And uh, 
you know, I want to ask you before we conclude the interview, uh, what would your advice be for all the viewers and listeners? You know, our viewers and listeners are drawn from all different segments. You know, we have uh, former students, current students, executives, policy officials, uh, donors. Uh, what would your recommendations or suggestion for me, for them to be preparing themselves better for the future, managers in general? Um, I think my only suggestion would be it's like a very exciting time for students, firms and academics and marketing. There are a lot of new exciting development like we were talking about, you know, um, optimization, personalization and automation of many marketing activities. The only thing I would say is that many of these seem often daunting, but my only suggestion would be to not be very shy, whatever your role is to like and go learn about and, you know, innovate in this right. space and um you know there's some things will work out some things won't but you know it would still be a fun uh, it would be a great learning experience and i think that we would all benefit from that that's a great message just be open to learning new things and also what i hear from you Hema, is also be willing to experiment whether it's you're a, a student or a constant learner or a firm or a manager uh, be willing to experiment uh, and learn new methods, technologies, yes. uh, and innovations. Is that correct? Yes, that, yeah, that would be the summary. That, that's a great message uh, for our audience. Uh, Hema, you've spent uh, a lot of very, very important time with us today. And uh, I certainly enjoyed listening to your insights and share your experiences. I hope uh, you enjoyed the interview yes. as well. Thank you very much again for giving us your valuable time. Thank you so much. It was lovely.